Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Poetry, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Yakir, your host. How one can speak about the past when the family don't have words to speak about it? How a person can speak about his or her history when the history comes from so many different places in the world? How a person identify as an Israeli when his family is from the Middle East, is from Iraq and from Kurdistan, and part of his family is from survivors of the Holocaust from Greek. And the person feels totally part of the Middle East. Today we will speak with Shachar Mario Mordechai, who is a poet who was born in 1975 in Haifa, live in Tel Aviv, he published four volumes of poetry which attracted critical attention. He was a poet in residence at John Optus University, Baltimore in Maryland for 2018 and 19. His books that will focus today, Tfos Makom Legeshem, Make Room for the Rain, a poetry book that was published in the Pardes Publishing House in 2018 won just now the first place in poetry by the Rachel and Leib Leib Goldberg Foundation for 2021. The book was written in the United States when Mario lived for two years in Baltimore and one year in New York City. A personal note, this podcast, as some others that I published lately, is my try to bring voices from the Middle East, voices from Israel, Israeli voices, Palestinian voices. I want the listeners to have the ability to listen to the people themselves who are living there. I hope you enjoy. Mario, thank you so much for joining us for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Yakir, for inviting me. So before we will start um, going deep uh, through your poetry, um, as an Israeli um, poet, who lives for a few years in the United States, something that I'm thinking a lot is the place of translation. It's um, this hybrid identity between being an Israeli, but living in the United States, then going back, having one home, or maybe slowly becoming two homes. And I was thinking maybe we can start thinking about that by looking on your poem that focus on the task of translation. So maybe we can hear you, and then by that we can speak deeper about this hybrid identity. Yes. So I'll read a poem on the task of translation. I'm reading it in English. It was originally written in Hebrew. Uh, And it was translated by Mayan Eitan. She's an author in Israel. On the task of translation. Try translating Arbit macht frei. Work sets you free isn't quite enough. Try and loosen. Is the final solution final enough? Once I watched a sitcom where a resident of Ahad Ha'am Street, come on, try, Ahad Ha'am, asked, what does it's a free country baby mean? And his neighbor replied, well, it's a free country baby. Laugh, laugh, but try translating the cry of my grandmother, Rosa, Dante, over her sisters poisoned by gas, Matilda, and Joya, and Sarah, and Susanna, and their mother, Regina, in Auschwitz. Try translating Auschwitz. And do I translate because along came Mario, an Italian sailor, and led Dante out of Inferno before he was my grandfather, and Rosa, my grandmother, and Europe, hell, Translate gas chamber, but before, 
translate train, going without food or water for a week, no air, no toilet. Did you? Look how nice this tragedy is translated into the history books, a treat for the professors of the 22nd century, music to the students' ears, like a fable. I will not speak of Irving. And from time to time, this whole thing is translated into a historical discovery for the readers of La Monde, The Guardian, Der Spiegel, on the breakfast table before leaving for another day at work or spending some time with the kids and the dog just a short while in the, shady, in the shaded area of Wendell Park, for example. But for my grandmother, Rosa, the discovery happened each and every hour and hour. Try translating. Speak with me about translation and identity. Uh, well, the identity, I think, is uh, very well rooted inside language. I think it was uh, uh, Amos Oz who said once upon a time that you do not really know your own language until you learn a different language, just like you do not really know your own country or your own city until you live in another city or in other countries. So the way our language works, I mean, Hebrew works differently um, when you um, compare it to English uh, in so many terms. So the way, once you know another language, then do you understand the way your language works and how rooted you are inside that language? I think um, I read once upon a time that there were um, 70 words for uh, uh, snow uh, by the Inuits, the Eskimos in uh, Canada and the uh, and North America in general, and uh, but they don't have many words for desert. They have only one. But in Hebrew, you can have midbar, arava, yeshimon, siyah, So many words for desert because you can differentiate between different kinds of desert because you're it's it's rooted in the um, geography. So um, if you ask me about translation, then I think um, language is identity. And then. There is something in the poem that you touch or you try to translate not only the language, but also the feeling, feelings for things that I saw charged, right? Like Auschwitz or train um, or even the names of your family who, are, who, who were taken to Auschwitz and something there it's really hard to translate it. So it's not only about the language, it's also about the culture as you, as you, as you connect them both. Um, what should we do with that? What should we do when we go you know, as Jews to the Holocaust and we try to make sense for something that doesn't make sense for us? How for you as a poet, what do you try to do there? Basically, I don't think I'm, I'm trying to do uh, anything with that because I don't really understand the Holocaust. I don't think I, only those who were murdered there, can they can understand what happened and we, we can't ask them. Um, the fact is that I'm, a, a, my grandmother, Rosa, uh, she was born in Rodus in Greece under Italian uh, rule. She was born there in 1912. And uh, she met, uh, later on, she met uh, Mario, my grandfather. He was Italian and he, uh, he was a Jewish Italian. He was working with the uh, Italian ship uh, as a sailor, sailor. And basically he, he saved my grandmother. He, he took her from, from uh, before, before the Holocaust. He took her from, from Greece uh, to, uh, to, to Palestine or to, uh, to, British, to the British Palestine. And, and he saved her. Her family, like her mother, Regina, as I said in the poem, and her sisters, Sarah, uh, Susanna, Joya, and Matilda, they were taken from Rodus, from Rhodes, to uh, Saloniki, from Saloniki to Auschwitz in Poland, and then they were uh, executed, murdered. And, and I never met those people, and I never heard anything about those people from my own grandmother, uh, whom li she lived until the, uh, the year 1998. Uh, she was pretty silent about that. So mm. what can I say about her silence? What can I say about her feelings? I don't know much about that, but when, when, as, as long as you get, as you get older and older, it's like you're, you're, um, it's like, it's like a tree that you're uh, 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 picking a fruit out of the tree, like insights. 
And then when you write the poem, you, you do get connected with your grandmother and with her family that she lost and with her silence about uh, uh, building a new family, not mentioning the family that was left behind. And suddenly you, you, you understand things and, you, and that's what poetry is all about, to, make, to open your eyes. By the way, the word poetry in Hebrew, shira, the, 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 the meaning of poetry in Hebrew is seeing. We have in Hebrew the words shuru, habitu, ru. It means uh, look, uh, um, open your eyes. Uh, we have in, uh, in the book of Job, Yov, the book of Job, he says, um, Where is my hope and who will see my, my hope? Yeshurena is to will see it. Shur lachzam ve'onyam in Hebrew means see their poverty and their troubles. Now in Hebrew, you have la'uf and then le'ofef, lakum and then le'komem, la'shur and then le'shorer. I don't know if I can explain that, but lakum, it means to uh, get up, to rise. But when you can lekomem, then you can make a rebellion and make Probably. other people wake up. And uh, so lekomem is much, is much stronger than lakum. And leofef is much stronger than la'uf because la'uf is something that the birds need to know. But, while, while, but when a bird can fight the, uh, the regime of winds and uh, easily fly, it's leofef, it's 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 more difficult to do, but much more uh, uh, leisurely. If I and le shorer is much more uh, powerful than la shur, because la shur is to see, le shorer is to make other people sing, and from there comes the word shira, poetry. So, what that the, the poem that you asked me about it made me see something about my grandmother, and once I once you read it, maybe I I could open your eyes as well. The opening the eyes of my reader or my readers, and that's what le shorer means to write poetry in Hebrew. So beautiful, it's so beautiful. And Mario, I'm thinking about that how much your poetry is also about trying to see things that it's really hard to capture. And we will see later um, some of your poet of your poems around the life as an Israeli in America and what do we see there. But I still want to stay in the past, okay? Yes. Because it's not only that it's almost impossible to understand the life of your grandma, uh, Regina, and um, but it's also happening with the generation just before you, with your father. Because right. and 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 I would love if we can maybe read the poem about um, the one who doesn't know how to ask. Um, maybe you can say something about the Jewish element um, of that, because it's a quotation from the Haggadah, the Passover Jewish Haggadah, the book um, yes. that we read. And then maybe we, we can read the poem and then speak about also the, our parents' generation, that something very deep happened to them. And we, it's really hard for us to capture it. Yes. Well, in the Haggadah, as you mentioned, Yakir, uh, in the Haggadah of Passover, of Pesach, there are four uh, uh, different types of uh, sons, four sons. Chacham, Rasha, Tam, the smart one, the evil one, the innocent or the naive one, and the one that does not know, uh, uh, doesn't know to ask. And the, the, I, in, the poem that you refer to is called the one that does not know how to ask. Let me see how it was translated, the one who doesn't know how to ask. Yes, it was translated by Lisa Katz. She's wonderful. And uh, I don't know if, if it's, I'm talking about me who doesn't know how to ask my father about what happened to him, or it's my father who doesn't know how to ask. Uh, um, for, the re for, for your viewers and the listeners, I will, I will explain. My father was born in 1947, therefore in 19... 67 he was 20 years old and 1967 is the the six-day war so he was a soldier in the uh, egyptian uh, front in the sinai desert and um he was a uh, uh, his the tank in which he was uh, driving it uh it uh, absorbed the direct blow uh by a egyptian um uh, heat and then he he caught on fire my father uh caught fire and he was in flames um, he was rescued from the um, burning tank and he was rushed to the hospital, the Soroka hospital in Beersheba, the city of Beersheba. 
And uh, he was back then in 1967 in um, 100% uh, disabled, uh, IDF disabled. Uh, today he's 52% disabled because uh, more than 50 years have passed and he, uh, he is going through uh, rehabilitation every year. Uh, so the percentage of uh, disability is changing. Um, so the, the, the poem talks about that, about, um, about my father, about what happened to him. And uh, my father is, the relationship between me and my father are not that easy. Uh, I think my father, he's responsible to me being a poet because my father is, 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 uh, is not articulate. He doesn't, he, he, he cannot, it's like me in English because in Hebrew I, I'm much more articulate, but like me in English, he cannot really complete a sentence. And it, sometimes it takes him um, a, a minute, and a minute is a long time to complete a sentence. It, it drove me crazy when I was a child. Sometimes it, it still drives me crazy. So I think the fact that my father finds it difficult to uh, to express himself uh, make me much more made me much more eager to uh, be able to speak, to write, to be articulate with the uh, surroundings. And and how much he speaks or he spoke with you about. Th this war and what happened to him? Only once, and it didn't go well. Uh, he was emotional. Obviously, I can understand that. So I spoke with his uh, friend. Uh, his name is Gada Gidon. In, uh, Bel he lives now in Belgium. Uh, and I spoke with my mother. I asked a lot of questions about what was uh, what happened to him, but I do not, it's, it's something I should do, but I don't speak much about this with him because the one time that I did, it didn't go well. So you need also translators for him by other people. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes, thank you. Let, let's read the poem, please. Yes, uh, the one who doesn't know how to ask. In 1967, my father was 20 years old. It seems my grandmother, that is his mother, didn't know exactly when he was born. She gave birth to him, dark skinned and black haired in Iraq where records were not always kept. And if they were, were sometimes lost. My father remembers neither the Tigris nor the Euphrates of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah or Ali Baba. Papa was 20 and knew nothing on his exodus from Egypt as it says in History of the Future, which I don't know if he ever read. If my grandfather had given a different date to the Israeli authorities, perhaps he wouldn't have been sent to the Egyptian front in the Six Day War. And if he hadn't been sent, he wouldn't have absorbed the direct blow to the tongue. And if he hadn't, my father wouldn't have been enveloped in flames. And if he hadn't, he wouldn't have lost his place on the Maccabi Haifa soccer team. And if he had continued to play soccer in Haifa, I wouldn't have been forced to play in his place and I wouldn't hate soccer. And if I didn't hate it, he wouldn't have spoken to me in broken language and wouldn't have broken me. And I wouldn't have had to wear armor facing the burnt tongue soldier known to me as my father. And at the age of 37, I wouldn't have asked Gideon, his friend called Gada from Belgium, to tell me about my father and how one morning in that blazing summer of 67 at Soroka Hospital in Beersheba, when he didn't find him in the burn unit and called out his name, my father answered, Gada, is that you? And Gada said, Mordecai, is that you? One clawed at the air and the other stood in the air, covered the snowy white landscape that was the body bound in a thicket of imperable, impenetrable bandages. My father, a human being inside dense brush. And suddenly Gada tells me that I must understand. He brings to my understanding that my father is human and I couldn't get enough of that. Wow. So beautiful and it's so hard how if we can't speak with our grandparents about the Holocaust and we cannot speak with many of our parents about their, you know, grown up in Israel and the price of being there. 
something very basic in us is silent. Yes. I, I don't know if it's the same thing between parents and kids in uh, America or in Europe. And I'm not sure that this is the same thing in Israel today between the generation of the parents and the, the teenagers of today. But obviously, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, there was a barrier between parents in Israel and their kids either those who uh, went through the uh, horrors of the Holocaust and uh, came as survivors, and they couldn't speak about that to their um, uh, children. And uh, the silence uh, at homes back then in the 50s and the 60s uh, made an impact on the children. And the same goes for those who fought the wars in 1948, in 1956, in 1967. Uh, I think there was and there still is a barrier between those parents and their, and their children, even though they're grown up today. Um, the, the language is broken. Um, many did not want to hear the stories. Many did not want to share the stories. Uh, many were uh, um, haunted by the horrors. And I guess that today it's completely different because today parents are much more uh, friends. It's less parenting. It's more friendship. They listen to the same kind of music. Uh, sometimes they read the same books and they go to the same concerts. Uh, but it wasn't like that in the past. And the, 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 the rift between parents and kids was very much vivid back then in Israel. There is another element, um, Mario, of the not knowing what to ask, because in a way you are asking many questions in this um, poem, um, right? You ask, there is a beautiful um, prayer in the Haggadah or Piyut, in this Passover Haggadah, it's like, what would happen to the Israelites if this would not happen, if it not happen, but then it's, let's say, let's say that God would take the Jews from Egypt, but didn't brought them to the Mount Sinai, right? And then if they brought to Mount Sinai, but they didn't get the 10 commandments, et cetera, et cetera, or didn't came to Palestine, to Israel. And you says if, and in a way the if for you is a wish, right? It's like, what if just your grandma would yes. make another year when he was born and then he will not be drafted to the IDF. Right. Can you That's the essence of Dayenu. Yes. Sorry? Can, can you share a little bit about um, our wishes um, to create a different situation or a different kind of narrative inside Israel? Yes, you mentioned the Dayenu prayer in Haggadah, and I used it in the poem that I read, because if it hadn't happened like this, then uh, it would have happened differently. So uh, Dayenu means it, that was good enough for me, uh, for us. Um, yes, absolutely. The, the way uh, the, the, the political uh, arena in Israel today is, uh, is the question of what if, what if, the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis uh, would have uh, um, created a bond uh, 100 years ago. Uh, we could have lived uh, together side by side, the, the two nations, and have a, a, a prosperous, uh, a, a beautiful land shared by the two of us. By the two of us, but so many mistakes were done uh, by the politicians, by the nations, and and look where we are now. So yes, uh, exactly. The, the, that's the essence of the prayer from the Haggadah in Pesach Dayenu, but we take it right now. We make a copy-paste from the Haggadah to, uh, um, to 2021. So, so Mario, I want to ask you, so it sounds and that from, from these two poems that one side of your family is from Greece and one part of your family is from Iraq. Right. And uh, yeah. My, my, grand, my grandfather on my father's side was born in Baghdad in Iraq, and my grandmother on my father's side, she was born in Suleimania, which was back then a village. Today, it's a, it's a city in northern Iraq. Basically, it's a Kurdistan, uh, the uh, Kurdi Kurdish uh, autonomy in north Iraq. So um, that's my father's side, half Iraqi, half Kurd Kurdish. And my, on my mother's side, yes, there are Greek and Italians, because Mario is Italian and Rosa is Greek. 
even though she was born in Rhodus under Italian rule, but still it was Greece. It is Greece today, so yeah. So it's uh, it's like Sephardic or Mizrahi Sephardic because uh, Spain, Italy, Greece, the Balkans is Sephardic Jews and Iraqi Jews are Mizrahi Jews. So there is no Ashkenazi in my family, but yeah, I'm, I'm like mixture of Mizrahi and Sephardic. I'm thinking about this side of your family um, of your, like the side, the Iraqi side, because you mentioned that one of them was from the city, one of them is from Kurdistan, which is a fascinating Jewish community, what we call the Ashur community. They still speak Aramaic, um, Jewish right. Aramaic, right? But they also, I guess that they spoke Baghdadian Ar Jewish Arabic, right? At home? Um, they, I visited in 2014, I went to the border between Turkey and Iraq, uh, there was yes, and I was even invited by a TV crew to enter Iraq, but I was so much afraid that I didn't do that. They wanted me to come with them to Soleimani at the village uh, of my of my grandmother. That is now a city, and they even told me that there is a, a street there called the Shah El Yahud, the 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 street of the Jews. Now they speak Kurdish, also Arabic, Turkish. Uh, I spoke with them, my uh, Arabic, which I, I know a little bit of it, and um, I met an Assyrian um, priest. Basically, the Turks, um, when, they, um, when there was the Holocaust of the Armenians in the First World War in 1915, the Turks also uh, uh, massacred uh, the Assyrians. But um, unlike the Jews and the Armenians who have their own sovereign states, and that's why they have a lobby for their Holocaust and their Holocaust is known in the world, the, the, the tragedy of the Holocaust of the Assyrians is not known. But the Assyrian priest whom I met, uh, his alphabet, alphabet is uh, the Hebrew one. Basically, the Hebrews, they um, adopted the alphabet of the Assyrians. So he, he spoke to me like Olive, Bot, Gomel, Dolet, which, and we say Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. It was very much alike. He even gave me a book written in Hebrew letters, but for him it's Assyrians letter. Now, as the word Syria today, this, the Syria is, the, is a Greek um, shibush. How do you say Greek? Uh, um, away. Greek mistake from, from Assyria. Assyria is Ashur, and it, may, it became. Uh, See, just like some believe, I don't know if it's true, some believe that Lebanon is from the word Lavan in Hebrew because the Hebrew uh, tribes, they saw the um, white peaks of the mountains and they call this land uh, Lebanon, comes from Lavan. And Al-Urdun, Jordan, is because uh, the river of the, the Jordan River is descending, is going down from the Sea of Galilee to the lowest point on the planet, which is the Dead Sea. So it's in it's it's in it's it's going down and in Hebrew Yarad going down like in Arabic it's Nazala. So the kingdom of uh, Jordan Al Urdun should have been called um, Al Anzil, but they call themselves Al Urdun, which is uh, which is derived from Hebrew. And also some say that the word Misr, which is Egypt, because Egypt in Arabic is Misr, is come from the word Meitzarim uh, in Hebrew Mitzrayim. Because in Hebrew, you, you have um, singular, plural, and you have a word for two. Like one hand and one hand is yadaim, one mishkaf, one mishkaf is mishkafaim, the glasses. One meitzar and one meitzar, it's two straights, like two tongues of the uh, sea going into the land. Meitzar and meitzar is mitzrayim. So Hebrew is very much uh, rooted in the area, but Hebrew took the alphabet from the Assyrians. And when I met that Assyrian priest, I don't know why I'm drifted now with that story. I, I don't think it's connected to what you asked, but yeah, that Assyrian priest, which I met in, yeah. yes, he, yeah. he gave me a book and I was so thrilled because it was written in Hebrew letters, which are not Hebrew for him, it's Assyrian. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Which I think it's very important because I think on the one hand, we see how much the life in, in, in for many Israelis is a life of multicultural 
so many refugees, refugees from Europe, refugees from the Middle East, but when we, and we don't have language, right? Because so many didn't speak. And even if they spoke, they spoke in, in Arabic, in Jewish Arabic, in Turkish, in any kind of language. But in a way, there is something very important around the storytelling by the Hebrew language that hold, in a way, the roots of, in the Middle East. It's like very native in the Middle East, the Hebrew, as you just mentioned about the different names. And I think that maybe by this connection between the language and the land, um, people feel at home or people feel that there is hope and maybe today we cannot communicate with our neighbors, but deep inside in the wording, in the narratives, um, as you mentioned, the Syrian uh, priest, uh, which is one of the most um, um, old and ancient Christianity, right? Same about the Christianity inside um, Egypt, which is one of the, 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 the very old one. And also with Islam, that so much is rooted in each other. And it led me to um, maybe the third poem that, and, and the last one that we will speak about our relationship with the Middle East. Um, I would love if you can read for us um, your poem about Muhammad al-Bu'azizi. Um, yes. Maybe you can say something about the story, about why you choose to write about him. Yes, just let me find, yeah, I found the poem. Yeah, Muhammad al-Bu'azizi uh, was a uh, Tunisian vendor uh, he uh, sold vegetables in his vendor in a small, small town in Tunisia. Uh, in uh, December 2010, for the third time, uh, they, uh, the, the authorities in Tunisia, they banned him from, uh, they forbidden him, forbid, uh, banned him from selling the vegetables and he had to um, uh, provide livelihood for his family. So after uh, um, being abused by the authorities, he had enough and he set himself on fire. And that was December 2010. And back then there was all there were there were many uh, um, iPhones and uh, cellular phones, so it was uh, filmed and um, and distributed in the in, in Tunisia. That uh, uh, was the trigger of the uh, Arab Spring, the revolution in Tunisia, which later. Uh, um, um, followed in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, in Egypt, it brought the, uh, the end of regimes, regimes in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, uh, uh, and the civil war in Syria. Now, um, Muhammad Bouazizi, he set himself on fire in December 2010, and he died of his wounds in January 2011. He did it not because he wanted to die, he did it because he wanted to leave, but they didn't let him uh, a, a fair option of, of, uh, of living. Um, I didn't know back then in 2011 in January why I was haunted by Muhammad Bouazizi and he uh, walked with me day after day and I woke up with him in the morning and I went to sleep with him and I, 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 I became like I, I became Muhammad Bouazizi myself and I didn't know why. I wrote a poem in March 2011 like two or three uh, months later, but, and I wrote it within seven minutes, something like that, but it wasn't really seven minutes. It was three months of thinking mm -hmm. about him and being him. Mm -hmm. And it took me a few years later to understand that I wrote about Muhammad Bouazizi only because of my father, because my father was on fire in 1967. Muhammad Bouazizi set himself on fire. You know, it's, it sounds very logical uh, to people, but I didn't, I didn't really realize it. Mm -hmm when I wrote it in 2011 and yeah, so I'll read the poem. Yes, please. Muhammad Bouazizi. I am Muhammad Bouazizi. And even though I died and lived in Tunisia in which I was crushed by the feet of dictators, I am telling you that Tunisia is a country in which you can raise your head if you want to. I myself thought that it cannot be and I thought as more and more years go by, it is less and less possible. How full we were. A generation that got smarter in universities but was not smart enough to raise its head on time. But I'm telling you, 
Freedom is ignited from the most hidden and beautiful curve in our heart, from what we wear underneath our skin. And I'm telling you, if we change our future, we will also change the way in which our past is judged. Wake up, brothers, from Tunisia and Libya till Egypt and Syria. Don't be afraid of the near soil and the fire. Listen, I am Muhammad Bouazizi. I am dead and alive in this world of yours that is crushed by the feet of dictators. And I am telling you that there is no land in this world in which you cannot raise your head if you want to. Wow. I can hear MLK in Hebrew. It's, it's, uh, it's a compliment. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's, it's so incredible. Like, I, I am, like, I'm so happy that when I ask for your poems in English, the ones that you translated or friends translated, and you send this one because I so want, and I think it's so important, like so many Israelis, I feel we want to speak with our neighbors. You know, you and me, we both um, had the gift to live for a few years in, 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 in America. And one of the things that really amazed me in and by living in America is I was driving yesterday from Wisconsin to Pennsylvania, to Philly. It took me, it took us 17 hours or something like that. In Israel, you cannot drive over four hours, but I was thinking, Mario, what if we could drive for not 17 hours, 10 hours, my friend? We will cross Jordan, we will go to Iraq, to Syria, to Iraq. It's, it's incredible. And I think there is such a deep wish for many Israelis that I meet to live with our neighbors and to speak with them and to be part of the Arab Spring, um, right. if we could, right? I don't know, I don't have the right words. Please hold this word and, and share where it touched you. Yes, I, I, I share your dream and I, it drives me crazy that we cannot cross the border and like drive freely and meet our neighbors. Basically, I think that there is a rift between the Israeli politicians and uh, uh, many Israelis like you and me, because the Israeli politicians, they face the West, they face, they, they face Europe and, and North America, and they want to resemble North America and Europe, they, they don't want to be part of the Middle East. But many Israelis like you and me, we feel brotherhood with the uh, nations of the Middle East, with the Palestinians, with the Iraqis, with the uh, Egyptians, with the Jordanians, with the Lebanese, obviously, because the Lebanese are very much like us, but the barriers, the, the, the wars between us uh, keep us apart. And I think that if only we had the chance to, because it happens sometimes that we do speak to uh, our, our Arab uh, brothers and neighbors, and we do find common ground. And, some, and we do find common grounds in our languages, because both languages, Arabic and Hebrew, are Semite, and I can call you Ahi. Achi, my brother, and in Arabic, Achi. And I can tell you, Ta'ala uh, Labeti, come to my home, Bolevetila, Baichili, Bait, Bait. It's the same word. And, and there, there are so much parallels between us, but the, our tragedy is the, is the tragedy of the politicians on both sides. But since I'm an Israeli, I will focus on the Israeli side, and I will tell you, and you know that, that the Israeli politicians, the Israeli leaders, they admire Europe and, and United States and Canada, and they want to resemble uh, those countries. Uh, and it's fine, the, we, we have so much to learn from them, but we are rooted in the Middle East. We are part of the Middle East. We have to face our neighbors and be part of them. And sometimes we don't, it doesn't happen because we don't let it happen. Wow, thank you for that. And um, I want to do now a shift and to bring us to United States and to your years there when you, when you were living in, um, in Baltimore, right? In Baltimore, Maryland. And um, you even wrote some poems in English. Um, right. How it is for you as an Israeli to write in English? Uh, it, it, surprisingly enough, it wasn't that difficult, but maybe because uh, there is music inside my poems in Hebrew. Uh, the poems that I read, translated, you couldn't sense that because they were translated, but uh, there is a rhythm, there is music, there, are, there is um, 
correlation between the words and the rhythm inside my poetry. So therefore, I think that I, 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 I was haunted also by the music in the English language, and I could find a way to write uh, poems in English. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe if I would have uh, lived in um, uh, Italy or in Egypt and I would have uh, absorbed the Italian language or the Arabic uh, language the, in the Egyptian dialect, I could have done the same. I'm not sure because English, you know, English we know from uh, from school. So we do, we are familiar with English to, to, to a certain extent. But it, to your question, to answer your question, it was surprisingly enough that I didn't find it difficult to write immediately English, but also because I wrote about the tension between um, uh, whites and blacks, between African Americans and and uh, and, and uh, white Americans, and therefore it felt natural to write it in English. Where you are when you come to America, so you pass as white, but I'm sure you don't feel white. Right. Um, is it in, it's, it's a fascinating position to be. Yes, I think United States of America in general, but Baltimore in particular, they uh, uh, discovered Israel to me much more than they discovered America to me. Because in Israel, I was um, um, stopped by police three times, once on the beach in Tel Aviv and twice in the street. On the beach in Tel Aviv, I took off my shirt and uh, it was summer and I put it on my head. It looked like a fear. So immediately two policemen came to me and asked for a, 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 my identity uh, card, uh, uh, identity card. Yeah, I think, and, yeah, yes. yes, and because they thought I'm Arab and it made me understand a little bit better what it means to be Arab in Israel, in, in the state of Israel, because uh, it's it's not easy at all. And the same happened to me twice in the street when I was stopped by policemen and they asked me to present the identity card because of my, uh, I sometimes I uh, I have the, I, I look like Arab. I feel Arab. I'm an Arab Jew. Uh, but when I came to the United States of America and I lived in Baltimore and I saw once again and again and again um, African-American people being uh pulled over while driving. I drove my car, other drove their car, and they were pulled over, but not me. Or in the street, I saw policemen uh, um, approaching African-Americans, but never me. Nobody asked me anything. And suddenly I was in a different position. I was, I, because I, in Israel, the Mizrahi Jews are called blacks. Obviously we're not black, obviously, but that's the terminology. The Ashkenazi Jews, those who came from Europe and, and the West are, are, are white. And those who came from Muslim states are black, and I'm I'm as if I'm a black Jew in in Israel. But in the Baltimore, Baltimore taught me about how how much racism there is in Israel itself, not on, only in the United States of America, but also other stuff. Like I had in Baltimore, I lived in two different neighborhoods. The first year in cross country neighborhood, which is uh, close to Pikesville, but it's still in, inside the city of Baltimore. The second year in Hampden, which is in the heart of the city of Baltimore. In cross country neighborhood, African-Americans and Jews live together. And when I met a historian in a coffee shop in Baltimore and asked him how come it happened, he told me something that I thought it was a lie, but then I checked out and it wasn't a lie. He told me about the redlining policy in the United States of America. Until the 70s of the 20th century, there was a redlining policy. It's a, um, uh, there was a sociologist called John McKnight who termed that term. And it meant that um, there were, uh, some people didn't get services based on their ethnic uh, background. Uh, I mean, uh, African-Americans, Jews, indigenous, uh, Indi Indians, indigenous, uh, and they were not allowed to, to live in the neighborhoods of the Christians, of the Protestants inside the United States of America, which blew my mind because I had no idea it happened uh, in Baltimore, also in Philadelphia, even in New York. And uh, they didn't have, um, sometimes it was directly, sometimes it was selectively like uh, insurance, uh, banking services, uh, supermarkets, uh, apartments. So that's why Jews and African-Americans live together in many neighborhoods in, in Baltimore. And 
One time an African-American neighbor came to me when I uh, came back from work, I parked my car and I, I uh, get out. I always, uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, working at school, I had a yamaka, a kippah, but I always took it off. When I went out of the car, there was no yamaka on me. And he, he asked me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, but I was very vigilant. because I said, why is he asking me that? Yeah. And he said, I envy you. And I immediately I said, you know, uh, like brainwash. I said, why would you be envying? Uh, uh, being Jewish is not easy. You know, Holocaust, persecutions, inquisition. And then he said to me something, Yakir, which really, uh, I, I, I wouldn't exaggerate saying that it's changed my life, that wow. it's changed my perspective. Yeah. He said, you guys have 3,000 years of documented history. You know where your forefathers came from. You know if they came from Egypt, from Babylon, from Europe, from uh, from uh, Persia. He said, I don't know where my forefathers came from in Africa. Mm -hmm. There is no documented history. Nobody wrote where they came from inside Africa, which country, which state, and if they were Muslims or Christians or even Jews. So I'm, I don't have roots. And it's a very simple truth, but it never crossed my mind until this uh, African-American neighbor told me that and it shook me. It happened a few years ago and I will never, I think I will never forget that. So, um, yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible what you said, because as you, as you said, at least in the Jewish tradition, we have what to rely on. It's like the storytelling, it's so important, right? And I think right. this is why it's hard for us when, I don't know, your parents don't share the, the story about the war or the trauma, but they share it by the trauma. But at least even if we don't have the language about, you know, the generation of the Holocaust, we have the thousands of years of storytelling that we can hold and be connected if we are connected to our Jewish, um, I would not say tradition, but Jewish culture, Jewish um, or the Hebrew culture. And, and there is so tragedy when we say like African-American and many black people tell me like, but we don't have the connection to the roots in Africa. Um, and so let's start diving into your poetry in this, in your life in, 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 in Baltimore. And can you, can we start with fall, winter, 2016, 17? Yes. Thank you. And anyway, I would just mention this coming poems you wrote in English. Right, in English. Yeah. And, and, and you, even in your book, which is a poetry book in Hebrew, that you didn't translate it to Hebrew. It's in English. Right. Originally in English, and yes. Uh, fall, winter, 2016-2017. The cool air felt good on my face. The trees were wet from the dew, and I knew it wasn't my place. The land looked tired or aged. Autumn had walked in and seen how things changed. Pack up and leave before the deep fall. Most men don't do it on time. Time does it to people. The air is colder every day. The trees drip with the dew. And I knew. Say more. Uh, say again, excuse me? C can you please say more about this feeling? Because it's such a, uh, as, an, as, an, as an immigrant also from Israel to America, I so understand what you talk about. It's the feeling of not, not belonging and the question of belonging. Right. Uh, first of all, you could see in that poem that there is rhythm and there are rhymes in English. Originally, it was written in English. And that's what I, what I meant before, that it was easier for me to write in English surprisingly, because in Hebrew, I do the same, even though it doesn't go through uh, in the translation. Um, yes, uh, to your question, when I... Uh, when I arrived in the United States of America in, the, in the September 2016, uh, and the first few months were difficult for me. I didn't find myself in the United States of America. I wanted to go back to Israel. I'm, I'm happy that I didn't go back to Israel and I stayed for uh, the whole three years because it, it enriched me. My, my experience was, was amazing. Uh, but the longing for Israel and Israeli culture was 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 very um, vivid. And also, um, 
uh, September 2016, I arrived. I wrote that uh, after the uh, after the uh, elections in which Donald Trump won, and it it made me sad because uh, I, I I understood that that wasn't my place because I understood that the 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 new back then new president has values that do not coincide with my values. So the the I wouldn't say depression, but the sadness of being away from my country and inside a country that uh, chose the, in my eyes, uh, then uh, the, the, wrong, the wrong president, then I wrote that poem, yeah. So um, I wonder a little bit because a lot of your poems also speak in, in, um, in your book, it speaks about um, the relationship with nature. And I wonder how much nature since nature, it's, uh, let's be honest, it's not, there is no American or Israeli or Palestinian nature. Nature is nature. Um, I wonder how much nature is a place that you create relationship with. Um, but also, you know, the United States nature, it's so different in a way from the nature that we know in the Middle East. Can, can you speak right. a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that the most dramatic thing that happened to humanity in general is the is not the point at which we uh, discovered nature but the point in which we got used to nature and then disregarded nature and ignored nature and then exploited nature and took advantage of the of nature and ruined nature for our own purposes but eventually now we see the ramifications of that because we uh, we, we are ruining the planet. So um, the, the, the state of Israel and Palestine are, are, it's a small, small piece of land. You said it yourself, you can drive four hours and then you reach a border. Sometimes you can drive one hour and you reach a border. Uh, if, you live in, if you live in Haifa and you go, uh, go to the north, uh, it, takes, uh, it doesn't take long until you reach the Lebanese border or the Syrian border. Um, it doesn't, it's not the same in the United States of America, as you know, or even if you want to cross the border to Canada, you can do it easily. Uh, so you can drive for 17 hours. Of course, you have to rest in the middle uh, and you, you are exposed to different kind of nature. Like when I, uh, in, in 2017, when I took a road trip to the six states of uh, New England in the fall, and I saw the, uh, um, the, the leaves, the red leaves, the yellow leaves, the gold leaves, and it ignited the, it ignited the roads, it ignited the rivers, it made, it, it, everything was on, on fire. I don't have such foliage, that's how you say it in English. I don't have such foliage in, in, in Israel. So it, it, uh, it haunted me, it, was, it fascinated me. And when I uh, drove to, a, I think the most beautiful place, as far as I know, in the United States of America is Glacier Park in Montana. Because in July, August, 2019, just before I moved back to Israel, I made a road trip uh, coast to coast from Maryland in the East to uh, Seattle, the state of Washington in the West. And uh, then when I uh, arrived in Montana, I went to Glacier and only those who were in Glacier know what I'm talking about. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I, I, I had to write about it. Yeah, yes, 100%. So I want to ask you to read for us now two poems um, about your meeting with race and racism in Baltimore. Um, I was thinking maybe we can read the first both poems from page 70 and 71, Do, Dig Through the Wall and Michael Schwerner. Um, yes. And then I, 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 yes, I want to learn from you about like how your narrative and like how much what you see in America is familiar for you as an Israeli, as you mentioned a little bit, but also maybe it's different. And there is also this deep relationship between um, Michael Schwerner and um, the, the Jewish community as a minority, as you mentioned. Um, so maybe let's read it and then we will speak about these two poems. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. 
uh, Dig Through the Wall, the first poem, it's about Freddie Gray. Uh, would you like me to start reading or just explain who Freddie Gray was? Say, say who Freddie Gray for our non-Americans or people here who doesn't know. So uh, Freddie Gray was a 25-year-old man. Uh, he was arrested in 2015 by six policemen in Baltimore. He was a Baltimorean. And he was arrested uh, for holding a small knife. Later on, uh, it turned out that he didn't hold that knife. He was, his, he was bashed with his head on the police car, and there is the marks of uh, bashing his head. And then the six policemen, they um, handcuffed him and took him to the uh, uh, police car, but they didn't give him the seat belt. So uh, what happened was a rough ride. There is, that's, that's the terminology in the US, rough ride. That means driving uh, very, very fast without the seat belt. Uh, it doesn't leave a lot of chances for the, for the poor guy. They drove for 45 minutes, even though the police station was only three minutes away from the place in which they arrested him. But after 45 minutes, they arrived at the police station and um, he was a, a veggie, vegetarian, that's how you say? Um, Vegetable. Yes. Yeah, and he yeah. was rushed to hospital and he died, uh, he, uh, died seven days later. Um, and then, then there were the what what the white Americans would say the riots, because the black community in Baltimore uh, was so upset. Uh, but I wouldn't call it riots. I mean, that's that's the terminology of, uh, of uh, that's the wrong terminology. Um, so I wrote about uh, Freddie Gray. Um, Dig through the wall. Hold your head higher above the rest of our dead above the narrative of the empire. Higher, Freddy, hold your head. Drop your feet down to the floor from cold table made of steel. People died like you before, due to color. They do still. History books will wash the stain without your voice in the protocol. Lives like ours washed to the drain. Come on, Freddy, dig through the wall. The dead are more than we can number. We need one to escape the grave. Dig through the wall, raise your head higher. Tell the story, Freddie Gray. Wow. That's what you said earlier about telling the story. The, the, it's, yeah. It's the only thing we can do. Yeah. Who is Michael yeah. Schwerner? Michael Schwerner uh, was a Jewish uh, American guy from New York. He was 24 years old. He was. Uh, in the in 1964, or in, uh, ahead of the elections, the elections in uh, every four years, he tried to um, to help um, African Americans in the South to vote because um, people in the South didn't didn't help them voting. They tried to prevent them from voting. There were three guys: uh, Michael Schwerner, uh, um, Goodman and James Cheney. Uh, two of them were Jews and one of them was African-American and they drove all the way from New York to uh, Mississippi in order to help the uh, African-American community to uh, be able to vote. And they were arrested by the um, uh, by Cecil Price. He was the deputy sheriff in, uh, in Mississippi or in Alabama, I think in Mississippi. And uh, when he let them free. They didn't know that he was part of the Ku Klux Klan, the deputy sheriff, and he and his uh, gang, they, they, they uh, uh, stopped them again, and this time they uh, murdered them. They murdered the two Jews uh, by a bullet to their heart. It was, if I can say, clean death. Yeah. But uh, the African-American, James Cheney, they... Uh, they 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 tortured him for hours uh, because of his color, and so his death was uh, uh, horrific. When I when I I told you that in 2017 I drove to New England to all the six states, and uh, when I arrived in Massachusetts, um, I I went into the museum of Norman Rockwell. I didn't know much about Norman Rockwell, even though he's very popular in American. Uh, art uh, because my I'm not that familiar with uh, with America and then 
inside the museum uh, of, of his home, probably in Massachusetts, um, I saw many paintings. Some of them were about the uh, African-American history. And I saw the painting of, of, of James Cheney being uh, tortured. And I didn't understand what I'm seeing. I read the subtitles and then I Googled and then I made, uh, I investigated and I found out all the details. It, it broke my heart, obviously. Also, I was proud of Michael Schwerner. I, it, today, I don't think that there is a cooperation between uh, Jews in America and African-Americans. Today, um, uh, today, there is a rift, I think, between the two communities, if I understand it correctly. But back then in the 60s, uh, there was a cooperation between the two minorities, the Jews and the African-Americans. I was so proud of Michael Schwerner because what he did even though it cost him with his life, and uh, he triggered the uh, the two laws, the uh, Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the uh, Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, thanks to them, thanks to those three, uh, wow. it happened. Yeah, so let's so read Michael Schwerner. Yes. Dear Michael, on 21st June 1964, the summer began and you died with James Cheney and Andrew Goodman. How far could you see in that blue ford? The summer skies embraced you through the trees. Later, the windows were rolled up by the deputy sheriff. There was a good breeze. Michael, my brother, it should have been a freedom summer. James drove the Ford station wagon to Mississippi only to get nowhere. One bullet struck Andrew, second bullet struck you. James died slower. Did you notice, Mikey, you were born on the election day that Lincoln won? Did it cross your mind in that blue Ford that the day you'd turn 73, you could see someone like James win a second presidency? but your last memory is seeing Goodman's soul as it leaves and the deputy sheriff in KKK disguise. Later, under a tree beaten to death, James could see the upper leaves and the summer skies. Mario, it's, um, I wonder, you know, I, I hear Billie Holiday's Strange Fruits. Um, I wonder what's happened when you read these poems to Americans? Uh, I read it only once to Americans. Um, that was in um, Johns Hopkins University. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, I would say they were shocked too. I don't know if they were shocked by the poems. They were shocked by the stories, by what I told them, by the revelations for me and maybe also for them. I'm not sure that Americans are very much familiar with that, let's say, ancient history, even though it's not ancient at all. Uh, but again, in Hopkins University, uh, when I uh, spoke with the students, uh, there was a debate after, after reading those poems, and you could see uh, that the debate was between, uh, I would say, white people and black people. It was heartbreaking to see. Um, there was a lot of understanding between them, not that there wasn't, but there was a debate. And it was um, emotional on one side and uh, less emotional on the other side. I'm trying to be precise with my words and, and gentle. It also taught me a lesson uh, about what happens in America. Baltimore, by the way, the city in which I lived um, is the biggest city in Maryland. It's not the capital is Annapolis, but the biggest city is Baltimore. Maryland is one of the um, um, uh, economically established states among the states of the United States of America. There are 16% uh, Americans under poverty line in the United States of America, but in Maryland, only 10% under poverty line. So Maryland is a better situation than US, but in, in Baltimore itself, 23% of the population is under the poverty line. Baltimore is a very neglected city. And when I lived there, I could see in Israel, there is a word called Haslala. 
I don't know if there is such a word in, uh, in English, like when the authorities pave your way in order to make sure that you get um, uh, less good education, less good uh, um, um, welfare system or a, a mm. health system. Like that's what we say in Israel about the Mizrahi Jews, that they were Muslim. Uh, I, I, I could see that in Baltimore when it comes to the African-American community, that the authorities paved the way intentionally so that they would be poor. So we're coming to the end. And I want to end with, um, if it's okay, with one of the poems that are, that is, um, it's, it still speaks about the questions of race in America, but it also brings your deep Jewish um, tradition because it's a prayer. It's end with a prayer from um, that the priests, they pray and Jews um, like to bless the Israelites, the Jews. Um, and actually in every morning, right, in the morning prayer in Shacharit, um, we say it. Um, I, I would love if we can end with the hope, with hope. So can you read for us, please? Again, this is going to be translation from Hebrew to English. The yes. title is in English, Green Book, but the poem itself is in Hebrew. Yes, the poem is in Hebrew, as you said, and I'll read the translation. I hope I'll read it well, because uh, sometimes I make mistakes. Uh, Green Book, one, question. Let's say you have to drive all the way between New York and New Orleans. Where will you stop for gas? Where will you spend the night? Where will you grab something to eat if the year is 1962 and you are black? Two, answer. Victor Hugo was born in New York seven years after his death in Paris. Victor Hugo Green compiled a guide for the non-white traveler so they can be saved from every enemy and ambush and from robbers and wild beasts on the trip and from all kinds of punishments that rage and come for every American Cosette or Jean Valjean, may God make his face shine upon them and be gracious to them. May God lift up his contentions upon you and give you peace. I hope mm. I read it right. Ah, it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful prayer. And also, of course, you quote from the prayer that Many Jews, they say when they travel, right? The Birkat Aderich. Right. That's Birkat Aderich, yes. Before yeah. you, you travel, you, you, you pray that prayer. So God will shine for you and, and nothing wrong will happen to you on the way. Yes. Shachar, what a gift to have you on the new books. And thank you so much for, write, for writing Make Room for the Rain by the Pardes uh, Publishing House. Thank you for joining us. Yakir, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure and uh, I hope I'll, uh, I'll see you. Amen.